Well, we've praised God in hearing his word read, and we've sang to this holy God. Now we take his, what kind of word? His holy word. And we come to it and we ask by his Holy Spirit that we might grab hold of a better understanding of it and of him and what it means to live for this God who is so great and so worthy of, of our lives and our attention. Everything that you heard in the first hour this morning just preparing us for this journey that we're going to have in the study of the character and the attributes of God, all of those apply to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The wonderful difference is that in the Lord Jesus Christ, in human form, we get to see those attributes in operation and carried out. And so we're back in this, this study in the Gospel of John that give us these sign miracles, supernatural works of the Lord Jesus Christ that demonstrate to us exactly who he is as God in flesh. And I know that you've probably turned to John 6 by now, but what I would like you to do for just a moment is I'd like you to turn back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. If you're keeping track of the uh, sign miracles, we're in number 5 uh, today. And number 6 is over there in chapter 9 of the healing of the blind man. And that's, I think, about 44 or 45 verses, and Marshall's going to tackle that next week. How long will it take him to get through those 45 verses? <laughs> and uh, he's going to take two and probably three weeks, and he's going to need it. Amen? But we're in the fifth one uh, today in these selective sign miracles. You remember at the close of the Gospel of John, John tells us if we were to take all the works of Christ and all the miracles and things about him, well, all the, all the books that could be contained in all of the world couldn't give us all the, the information about him, but these have been, have been written for us that you might see who he truly is. And that knowing who he is, you might believe upon his name, and believing on his name, you might have life and life eternal. Now, one of the things that I want to point out concerning the Lord Jesus Christ in this prologue of John in chapter 1 is the reminder of verse 3, that Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh, created all things in this world in which we live. Verse 3 says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him came nothing into being that has come into being. This word, the Lord Jesus Christ, was literally the creator in the creation of all the earth and all of the heavens. In fact, now I would like you to come back to John 6, keep your finger there. But I'd like you to move over into another passage in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul takes that same truth, doesn't he? And he, he, he expands on it. He, he drives it home with the fact of, again, as creator and even sustainer of our world. 
Colossians chapter 1, begin in verse 16. Here we have the same truth, do we not? Verse 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is first in terms of his preeminence over everything. For by him, verse 16, here it is again, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. What you see in this world and what you don't see that is in this world, physical and spiritual, all thrones and dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and notice and for him. For him. What is true about God is true about the man, God, the God man, Jesus Christ, unto his unto his glory. And then he says in verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things are sustained or maintained or hold together. When you begin to look at this in terms of the Trinity, we talk in terms of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, we can come back to the Gospel of John now in chapter 6, that what is called with reference to Christ is that he is the instrumental cause, instrumental cause of creation. He, he was the agent of creation. Within the Trinity, the Son is the one who did the work over creation. Geisler, Norman Geisler, says he, is the, he was the master workman. And when we talk with reference about his part as creator with, in the work of, of, of the Trinity, of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we often speak in terms of the Father planning or the Father initiating and the Son doing, doing the work. And in that sense, theologians talk about the fact that Christ as the instrumental cause of creation, but the Father as the efficient cause. Planner, Son, carrying out the work. And over his creation, Jesus has sovereign control over everything. Now you and I can watch a movie or put a DVD in the player or whatever else, and we got our remote, and we can turn it on, we can turn it off, we can do fast-forward, we can rewind it, we can put it on pause, whatever else. But you can't do that in life. You don't have control over the natural laws within that we live and we move. But Jesus Christ is not restrained or restricted to any of that. If you go out of the building this morning and you, you step down or you miss that step, the, 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 uh, the law of gravity will take over, right? You will not go up, you will, everybody say, you will go, you'll go down. But what I want to point out to you this morning and what we see in our miracle that is recorded for us is Jesus is not confined by any of that. And from time to time, we just stand back and we are just filled with wonder how the God-man demonstrates his deity to us. And when we are filled with wonder about him, it promotes our worship of him. 
And as we were so well reminded this morning, our theology leads to a proper doxology. And I want to build on that this morning and say our proper Christology likewise promotes a proper doxology. Well, we, we see that his power over his creation in chapter 6, and we're going to look at verse 15 through verse 21 uh, this morning, but I want to back it up for a moment and just note the context of what's going on in this chapter. You remember two weeks ago, Marshall took us through this great miracle, creation miracle, by the Lord Jesus Christ, even like where we started with the turning of water to what? To, to wine. And we had another creation showing that he is God in flesh in the feeding of the 5,000. And when that took place, verse 12, we'll read in chapter 6, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up, filled the 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had been eaten. And therefore, okay, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and to take him by force to make him king, and the text tells us that he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. A couple of quotes that I thought were very excellent concerning what's going on here with the people coming to take him by force. They, R.C. Sproul makes the point, he says, stoking the people's hopes for someone to deliver them from the yoke of Roman tyranny. The perfect political candidate appears on the scene. He even provides that which was Political votes for every, which wins political votes for everyone. A chicken in every pot or a loaf and a fish in every lunch. Doesn't get any better than that. So the people said, this is the kind of king we want. One that will care for us from the cradle to the grave. But Jesus read their hearts. And he knew that the kind of king that they were looking for had nothing to do with the kind of kingdom that he had come to inaugurate. They were looking for the kingdom of man. He came to bring the kingdom of God. It was his mission to provide his people with so much more than bread and fish. We weren't ready for a king that would rule over their hearts and over their lives, but wanted a king who would deliver them from their problems and provide for them for their, for their needs. Wiersbe has another helpful comment about what had gone on with reference to the feeding of the 5,000. He says, the crowd was now aroused and there was a movement to make him king. Of course, some of the disciples would have rejoiced at the opportunity to become famous and powerful. Judas would have become treasurer of the kingdom. And perhaps Peter would have been named prime minister. But this was not in the plan of God, and Jesus broke up the meeting immediately. We're even told about him sending the people away. And then when we come to verse 16 through verse 21, we have this sign miracle recorded for us by John 
that demonstrates Jesus' sovereign control and power over the natural laws of his creation. And I'm going to look at it in scenes, if I can do that this morning. And I want you to see the first scene that we have, we find right in verse 16 and 17. And that is, in these verses, Jesus sends the crowd away, and he sends his men out to sea. Look at verse 16. And now, in light of all of this, verse 16 says, Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. And it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now notice again, verse 16 says it was now evening, late in the day. The crowd had been fed and gotten into such a frenzy over coming to make his king, so Jesus is gonna, he's going to go somewhere else and he's going to send the men off, multitudes away. And verse 15 tells us, he went again to the mountain by himself. First quiz question this morning, are you listening? What did he often go to the mountain to do? Well, if we look at some of the other texts and the save you have to keep turning constantly this morning, we can find in Matthew chapter 14, 22 and 23. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. Well, he sent the crowd away, and after he had sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountains by himself to do what? Yeah, to pray. When it was evening, he was there alone. When you think about the day that he had, in fact, if we would back up in the other Gospels, we would note that Jesus took his men to the place there where the 5,000 were fed, but he took them there to get alone with them and for them to catch their breath. And as soon as people knew where he was at, we're told the masses from all the communities just started gathering and running there. And so there he is all day long. He's healing people who've come to him and are desperate for his sovereign healing power. And he's preaching to them and teaching them. And it goes on throughout the day and it begins to come at night. People are hungry, and so he tests his men and says, how are we going to feed all these people? Philip, how are we going to do this? Five loaves and two fish. And Jesus fed the 5,000 and then sends them all away, and he gets away to the mountain to pray. And I thought it would just be worthy to think about together this for a moment. If you and I have a long day, a full day, and a tiresome day, What's the priority in your life? My priority is my lounge chair. How about yours? My priority, if I'm worn out, I want to take rest. And that's not all bad, is it? But the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our example in all things, needed fellowship with the Father. Jesus had to pray. Jesus had to pray. So he gets alone to pray. He gets alone to be strengthened for what's ahead. He gets alone to pray for these men because these men are going to be in a test and we're going to see how they do. And I'm reminded this morning, are you, that Jesus Christ, we're told in the book of Hebrews, that he is our high priestly intercessor. 
our high priest, and he intercedes on our behalf. And one of the ways that he does that is he prays for us. And I believe he's praying for me this morning, to be clear with the text. And I believe he's praying for you, for you to understand who Christ is and be impacted by God's word and to bring about the desired change in your life. Maybe coming to Christ today or the desired change in your life that Christ play the kind of role in your life that he is so worthy of as God in flesh. Jesus had to pray. How about that? And I think he's praying for those men. Well, the second scene is in verses 18 and verse 19. Let's go there. The second scene is this. First one is, sends him off. He goes away to the mountain. Second one here is, now his men are caught in a storm. They're caught in a storm. 18, the sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind was blowing. And then when they had rowed about three or four miles, something else happens. I'm going to stop right there in the text. You know, probably you know, that the Sea of Galilee is notorious for its, its storms. Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long and approximately 8 miles wide. It is some uh, 700 to 800 feet below sea level. It is the second lowest uh, sea or body of water in the whole world. Only thing that's lower than that is the Dead Sea beyond it. And while it's some uh, 700 to 800 feet below sea level, the hills around it, and if you're in, from Indiana, you'd call them mountains, <laughs> right? Around the Sea of Galilee go up some 2,000 feet above sea level. And so it, it, it creates almost like a tunnel effect of the wind. And when it goes during the hot day to a cool evening or other changes in weather, this, this wind, this this, this breeze begins to just come into it, and it just creates what is called a, just a cup of reeling, so to speak. And it's like being in the middle of the ocean in a hurricane, but it's right there in the Sea of Galilee. And these guys that are out there, I don't know if it's all 12 of them or not, but the ones that are in his boat and that were with him, they're out there three, four miles in the middle of this storm, and they may have been fishermen, but I don't think they were sailors. And they're caught in this thing, this, this, this storm that's, that, that's going on. And do you suppose Jesus is aware of this? <laughs> do you suppose Jesus might even have sovereignly deemed this to be so? Does he care about them in that storm? Does he care about what's going on with them? Wearsby puts it beautifully. I want to use his, his parallel. He says, in the feeding of the 5,000 compared to the storm, he says, in the feeding of the 5,000, it's all good and a wonderful example of Jesus' total sufficiency. They're there, they're watching him, they see him feed the thousand. Wow, is it great to be with Jesus. But he says, when we go from the 5,000, feeding of the 5,000, to the storm, we move from the example to the exam, to the test, to the trial, to the crisis. 
And when we move from the example there of Christ's absolute sufficiency, when you're right there and it's all joy and it's all going on, and you move into the area of the storm, now we're going to find out just how sufficient is our God, just how sufficient is Christ, just how worthy he is to trust when you're in the boat and you're in the storm and it doesn't seem like he's there. And if I can push the analogy, there's every week we're praying here for people. Some are getting in the boat, and some are already in the storm. And as we pray for people, we pray for God to be real in their life. We pray for them to experience what it means to trust God in the midst of the storm. Because that's where you really find out about trusting him. Trusting him. You know, the psalmists, all the promises of God, but the psalms are so helpful for us in the midst of the storm. And I thought we would just look at a couple of those this morning that are so relevant, and we're going to see that these men are crying out to God in the midst of what's going on. Psalm 18, verse 6 says this, in my distress I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry for help before him came into his ears. He heard. He heard. Psalm 37, 39, and 40. Look at this text. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in times of, what's it say everybody, in times of what? Times of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. Learning about that. Psalm 50, verse 15. I only have 90 of these verses. Just hang in here, okay? But why don't you read this short one out loud with me? Would you just read it out loud with me? Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. How about that? Now, I wonder if his men were praying any of these psalms at this time as they're out there that far and into the storm. In fact, I believe that I went by a passage that tells us something about what that was like in this particular storm. Yes, Matthew 14, 24 and 25 says this, but the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary, and in the fourth watch of the night, Christ is going to come to them. Now, if you check this out, fourth watch, the fourth watch in the night for the Jew and the Roman time frame here was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. They got into the boats as it's getting toward evening, right? Maybe even it's just getting dark. What time would that be? 7 o'clock? 8 o'clock? <laughs> it's now at least... 3 a.m. 
How long have they been trying to get through that storm and get what they're going? For hours they've been struggling. What a time for Christ to come. Third scene, here it is, 19 and 20. Second half of 19 where I stopped in verse 20. Here comes Jesus walking on the sea amidst the storm. Second half of verse 19. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were, do tell, they were frightened. You say, not me, I wouldn't have been. Oh, uh-huh. You don't see this every day. He has total, absolute control over every aspect of his creation. And we already know that about God, but we see it in Christ. And here's one of the ways. Feeding 5,000. Healing people. Blind man we're going to see. Water to wine. The man by the pool that's been paralyzed for 30-some years. Get up, take up your pallet, go walk. And there's God. There's God in flesh demonstrating what a wonderful Savior that we have. And this one who owns it all, who rules over it all, is the one who humbled himself and came to the cross and died for sinners like us. Amazing grace, is it not? Amen? So here comes Jesus. <laughs> here he comes, walking on the, on the water here. And the Bible tells us in the other, these other accounts that they're looking in it, in, in, in Mark chapter 6, verse 48, we read, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, that's why they weren't kidding, and the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by. <laughs> Matthew 14, 26, says this, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. First, they're trying to see what it is. Not sure what it is. They think it's a ghost. Then they see who it is, and then they realize what he's doing. Walking on water. And notice verse 20. He said to them, It's I, do not be afraid. And I'd like to show you something about the text there that I think can be missed. Because I, I don't think we could paraphrase verse 20 by, by Jesus saying, Hey guys, it's all right, I'm here. I don't think it was like that. And when we look at the text, at these two little words, Ego, me. Ego, me." And the rest of the places that John is translating that in the book of the Gospel of John is places like over in verse 35. Look there with me. It's commonly translated, verse 35, Jesus said to them, what's the next two words? I am. And when we begin to look at these I am's in the Gospel of John, it connects to the Exodus chapter 3 where God describes himself as the eternal God, everlasting God, all-existent God. And I don't think Jesus is saying, it's okay, boys. I think he's saying, I want you to know who I am. 
I'm God in flesh. I'm in control. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'll take care of you. Comforting words to say the least. I am. Now, one of the things that we discovered, and that's why I'm kind of bouncing back with reference to the text, but one of the things that we discovered about who's in the boat here is Peter's in the boat. And it's always interesting when Peter's in the boat, amen? And I want you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, the 14th chapter. We've been in it already, but we have that account of Peter being in the boat with all that's going on. And, whoa, what is this? It looks like a ghost. No, it's Jesus. Matthew chapter 14. Let's begin in verse 25. And here we're told how early in the next morning it really is. 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, said it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear, oh, help. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, sigh, do not be afraid. And Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, keyword, command me to come to you on the water. And he, Jesus, said, come. It's imperative. Come. And Peter got out of the boat, and Peter walked on the water, and Peter came to Jesus. Wow. Verse 30. Do you have that crossed out in your Bible? No. But Peter, seeing the Everybody with me? Seeing the, he became frightened, and he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Verse 31, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of, of Peter, and said to him, you have little faith, why, why did you doubt? And I'm here to tell you that we love to Pick on Peter here, don't we? Say, oh, Peter got his eyes off of Christ and onto his circumstances, and he lost sight of Christ, and, 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 and he didn't, didn't maintain his focus here. And, but I just got to tell you something. How many of you have walked on the water? Peter got to walk on the water. But you know what? Peter was impetuous, didn't he? Wasn't he oftentimes? We call him the apostle with the mint-flavored sandals, don't we? oftentimes. But he got to walk on the water and where are the rest of the men sitting in the boat? What would you have done? you say, well, I'd have got out of the boat and walked on the water too. Oh yeah, really? They're watching Peter. A couple observations just quickly about Peter. Yep, he was impetuous and there, there were things that he would, oftentimes he'd act before he would think, you've never done that. But the, the, there is, was no doubt about Peter. His heart was to be all in on Christ. And I want to tell you this morning, God will use people whose heart is all in on Christ. And he will with Peter, will he not? 
So don't be discouraged when one minute you're bold and the next minute you're weak. You're still in the process of learning. And what Peter needed, he had more to learn about trusting God. Do you have anything? Can you identify with that? What Peter needed and what you and I need is not a faith at one moment we could jump out of the boat and walk on water and the next moment we're experiencing doubting. What Peter needs to learn and develop is a consistent faith, a steady faith that is grounded in truth and in the faithfulness of God. And that's what we develop in your life. Consistent, grounded in the faithfulness of God. James reminds us, doesn't he? It talks about lacking wisdom, correct? The book of James says, For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Up one day, down the next. And how this double-minded man is what? He is unstable in all of his ways. God wants stability. He wants consistency in our lives. And he's worthy of that. And could I just... Turn back with me to the Gospel of John. Could I just press the analogy just a little bit more in terms of Jesus taking hold of Peter? And could I just note it wasn't Peter hanging on to Jesus, although I would understand that, but Christ is hanging on to him. And you're not saved today because you're trying to hang on Jesus. You're saved Because Jesus, when you believe and repent of your sin and trust him, he has a hold of you. And nothing will take you out of his sovereign, loving, omnipotent hands. And we love the way John states that in John chapter 10, do we not? Integrate. Because if you remain saved by you hanging on to Jesus and by your performance, you wouldn't last through the week, would you? But he saves and he keeps us. We are kept by the power of God, Peter says. We are kept by the work of Jesus Christ. Our security is because he has us as his own. We praise God for that. Over there in John 10, you know the text, but oh, so worthy to read again, isn't it? Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they will may, two tiny little Greek words that is a double negative. Paraphrased, if you're from West Virginia, it'll say something like, ain't no way never. Amen? I want an amen over here. Amen. Ain't no way never. That's, it's the strongest way in the New Testament to say a negative. And no one, they will never perish, double negative, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me as greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And here's the reality. I and my Father are one. Wow, we're secure in Him. He's hanging on to us. We're not hanging on to Him. He holds us. He cares for us, has us in the center of his will. Thank you, Peter, that you were willing to get out of the boat. Thank you for that. Thank you for the way God, he just all in, and God used his life in great things, but he had to develop a consistency and a, and a stability in the faith, and we have to have that in our own lives as well. Back to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Last scene. 
okay? Is Jesus in the boat with his men? Verse 21. So they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. That's amazing. Look again with me at a couple of passages. Matthew 4.32. Okay, when they, Matthew says, when they got into the boat, the storm stopped. Mark 6.51. Is that up there? Yeah. Mark 6.51 says that then he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished. And Matthew again in verse 33, I want to come back to verse 33. It says, and those who were in the boat worshipped him and they said, you certainly are. God's son. And the only right response to him in the midst of all of this is worship, is praise, is adoration before him. And if you're keeping track, we got four here. Are you keeping track? We got Jesus walking on the water. We got Peter walking on the water. We've got the storm being stopped. And the text tells us, and immediately the boat set the other side. No wonder they're worshiping him. And him demonstrating his absolute preeminence over all things. We get to see it when we look at him. This is our Savior. This is how great is our Savior. R.C. has one other quote that I thought was worth sharing with you this morning. He says this, there's an illustration here, I don't want to be dramatic, but this is the way our lives are. This storm is not a parable, it's a historical narrative, however it is certainly illustrates what happens when Jesus comes into our lives. Just stop there for a moment, when Christ comes into your lives, it's smooth sailing every day, amen? Back to the quote, life he says in the middle, life is a time of pulling against the oars, against resistance, trying to get somewhere. However, we're not getting anywhere and we're, not about, and, and, and we're about to be engulfed. But as soon as Jesus gets into the boat, we're home free. That's what happens when Christ comes into the lives of his people. He doesn't take away all the difficulties and make our lives beds of ease, but he gets us through the darkness even the shadow of death. He gets us through the violence and he gets us through the storm. And if my, I may add, he gets us home. He gets us home. And from the feeding of the 5,000 to this miracle, it sets up this, what's called this great bread of life discourse. Where Jesus says, I'm the bread of life Take and eat of me. Take me into your life in the fullest way. It'll be the smartest thing you ever have done. And you need him because you need a savior because of your sin, you're lost and separated from him. 
Look with me in chapter 6. We're going to cover the whole message here this morning. I just wanted to hear an amen. Yes, amen. Okay, look at verse 47. I mean, it's the whole discourse here. And, and, and many, a walk, many walk away from him, even many who have been fed miraculously. Why? Because so much like today, so many wanted Jesus in their own kind of making. Yeah, I want him to take care of me. I want him to give me peace. I want him to provide for me. I want him to protect me. I'm not sure, though, that I want to live for him. Look at verse 47, chapter 6. Truly I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Verse 51, and I'll end with that. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Many had problems with that. It sounded like just too much of a commitment. But when you see how worthy he is, how powerful he is, how great he is, he is more than willing to be the Savior in your life that you need. How great thou art. Everything, first hour, trust you be here, first hour next week. Dave, pay me for that when you have opportunity. <laughs> but everything we're learning about God, we get to see in Jesus Christ. And there is no one like him. Amen? Let's bow in prayer and thank him for it. How great you are. Lord Jesus, we pray what we pray in your name because we want to pray what we pray in line with who you are and what you say and what you would give examples to us as the will of God for our lives. We want our lives to line up with you. We want to become more like Christ. And so we thank you for showing how worthy is this Christ. And yet, would humble himself, take upon the form of a servant, dying a cross even, death of a cross, hmm. Thank you for last Sunday and every Sunday we meet. Hallelujah, he arose from the dead. And we're alive because he is alive forevermore. And I ask based upon the presentation of this great Savior today that you'll finish the message in our lives in how we are bold like Peter and, and living for this great Savior. In his name we pray. And all his people said,